Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? The intent here is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary as we monitor the fluid nature of COVID-19. Our aim is to bring in experts like yourselves from various focus areas within the field of infectious diseases. Right now, I'm joined by members of IDSA's coronavirus expert panel, Dr. Carlos Del Rio with Emory University, Dr. Javid Siddiqui of Talmed to You, and Dr. Ravina Kalar of Expert Stewardship Incorporated. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks. Thank you all so much for being here. Dr. Kalar, the question that's top of mind for everyone right now is where does the spread of COVID-19 stand today, both globally and domestically? a great question. The state that we are in, in the United States and globally with COVID-19 is changing by the day. And that is what makes this virus quite concerning to me. Two months from the initial coming out of COVID-19, we still do not have answers to some critical questions. By the time I verbalize these updates to you, my numbers will likely be outdated. So as of February 27th, 6 a.m. Geneva time, China has reported 78,630 cases and 2,747 deaths. But the transmissibility rate happening in the rest of the world is what is gravely concerning to me. Outside China, there are 3,474 cases in 44 countries and 54 deaths. All but one continent, Antarctica, now has at least one case. In specifically the United States, there are 60 cases, but thankfully there have been no deaths in the United States. For the past two two days, the number of new COVID-19 cases reported in the rest of the world has exceeded the number of new cases in China. Uh, Lastly, the CDC stated on Tuesday that we should all prepare for the spread of COVID-19 in communities across the country, and we need to prepare for disruptions of our daily lives, including school closings, working from home, and delayed elective medical procedures to contain the outbreak. This hits very uh, very close to home for me because Just this week, Orange County and San Francisco declared COVID-19 a public health emergency, and Australia is now operating as though COVID-19 is a pandemic. Dr. Kalara, as an ID pharmacist, you're looking at this from a treatment perspective. What can you tell us about current treatment for patients with COVID-19? Yeah, so I'm just going to highlight a few vaccines and treatments that stand out to me. Let's just start with vaccines. The COVID-19 outbreak is bringing attention to this fast-growing vaccine industry. As we all know, every virus has its unique hurdles. COVID-19 binds to an angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2 receptor, and this is what actually helps usher it in into a lung cell and cause the infection. So for COVID-19, to develop a vaccine, first you have to interfere with the virus's ability to dock with its ACE2 receptor And then you have to reduce this problem of antibody-dependent enhancement, meaning that some virus vaccines can actually make things worse. So I'm just going to mention a few companies that come to mind. Moderna is the first biotech company that has actually delivered a COVID-19 vaccine for human testing. And what's very unique about this is that they utilize a newer vaccine technology, 
which is being used that's based on specific DNA or messenger RNA sequences of the virus. So the chosen virus then sequence then codes for a viral protein such as one on the surface of the virus. The nice thing about this technology is that it bypasses many of the traditional steps to vaccine discovery and development. So it's a very quick and fast process. Um, University of Queensland in Australia is also developing a unique platform. They have the world first molecular clamp vaccine platform um, where um, to engineer a vaccine that could uh, be more readily recognized by the immune system and therefore then trigger a protective immune response. The test vaccine was developed in just six weeks and research has said that the early research had gone as expected and the material created had the properties which allowed the team to proceed with vaccine development. Um, I also just want to mention that Sanofi and J&J, those larger pharmaceutical companies, they also are working on coronavirus vaccines with the backing from BARDA. But keep in mind that these vaccines, they are going to take at least one year to develop. Um, I, I want to just briefly mention some treatment options, move from vaccines to treatment. Uh, to speed the access to treatments, vaccine researchers, they have repurposed a number of existing drugs in the hopes of finding something that might work against COVID-19. Gilead Sciences um, has their drug Remdesivir, which is a novel nucleotide analog prodrug, which you may remember where it failed against Ebola, but it has shown promise in vitro and in vivo in animal models against MERS and SARS, which are coronaviruses that are very structurally similar to COVID-19. There was a recent study that was published that found that remdesivir successfully reduced respiratory symptoms in monkeys that were exposed to MERS. And so Gilead Sciences is a first company to conduct a clinical trial in the United States to evaluate COVID-19 treatment specifically in those patients that have the disease. Actually, just this past week, the first patient voluntarily enrolled, and that was a patient American patient off the Diamond Princess cruise ship. There's randomized control trials ongoing at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, uh, which is um, with, with trial regu regulatory sponsor, uh, sponsorship being through um, NIAID, which is part of NIH. And Gilead has also partnered with Chinese researchers to conduct two clinical trials, which are coordinated by the China-Japan Friendship Hospital in Beijing. Um, moving along, uh, we also have favilavir, which is an antiviral, and that's actually the first approved coronavirus drug in China. The, this drug has reportedly shown efficacy in treating the disease with minimal side effects in a clinical trial involving 70 patients. And Chinese government has announced that this drug will be used as standard medication for treating infected patients, primarily those in critical condition. Chinese officials, they're also testing AbbVie's two-drug HIV treatment, Kaletra, which is lopinavir and ritonavir, and this is designed to keep HIV from replicating in people. The hope is that this will do the same with a new coronavirus, and this drug is being used for compassionate use as well in China. Same with um, remdesivir, which is Gilead's drug. 
Uh, I also want to mention the anti-malaria drug, chloroquine. This is being tested in 10 hospitals in China in more than 100 patients. Uh, this drug has been used for more than 70 years for malaria. Preliminary results have suggested that at least has some benefits in patients with pneumonia. For those that took the drug, they had be better indicators than their parallel groups in the abatement of fever, improvement of CT images of lungs, and the percentage of patients who became negative in their viral nucleic acid test in the time they did they uh, need to do so. Patients also took a shorter time to recover. Uh, lastly, just a quick mention, uh, Chinese scientists are also treating some patients with blood from coronavirus survivors. And this is an older technique that has been used to fight rabies, diphtheria, and other infections. So far, 11 patients with severe pneumonia have shown significant improvement with the treatment with no severe adverse events. As you can see here, there are some very promising vaccines and treatment options in the pipeline. I'd like to go back briefly and talk about vaccine development. Will there eventually be a vaccine to prevent COVID-19? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there is, um, there's work being done, but I think it's going to take time to really develop a vaccine that can prevent any coronaviruses, um, so SARS, MERS, and COVID-19. Um, something to keep in mind is that there are several pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, which are making this a priority right now. Uh, I definitely see it coming, um, but it's going to be a few years from now. A lot of good information there. Thank you, Dr. Kalar. Dr. Siddiqui, I'd like to turn to you now. Just this week, the CDC indicated that there may be a need for greater use of telehealth if COVID-19 becomes a larger outbreak than we've seen thus far here in the States. You're a pioneer in telehealth, and I understand that you've treated several patients with COVID-19 thus far during this outbreak. Do you mind sharing with us your experience in treating them? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join the podcast and to be with this distinguished faculty. Um, you know, it's uh, being in telemedicine and telehealth, it's a wonderful and uh, tremendous opportunity. Um, and it's wonderful to hear the CDC acknowledge uh, telemedicine and telehealth. I think we missed a lot of opportunities during the Ebola crisis in the United States and not leveraging our telemedicine and telehealth technologies. So, you know, just to update you, our group has uh, been privileged enough to treat uh, three patients now with COVID-19 off the uh, cruise ship. Um, um, and um, we've been treating them, seeing them through telemedicine. You know, at the end of the day, telemedicine is a workforce multiplier. And I think that when we look at telemedicine and telehealth, we have to look at it in two different aspects. One is a workforce multiplier, to be able to get experts and to be able to get uh, an increasing access to infectious disease physicians in community hospitals, in community clinics. You know, as the, uh, the number of infected cases grows, there's going to be more and more need for infectious disease physicians to be uh, giving guidance, and especially um, as uh, Dr. Kohler was talking about, if these treatment strategies do come into play, again, we're going to have to have experts directing this type of care. What better way to do that than through telemedicine and telehealth technologies, right? To be able to uh, see patients, to be able to uh, not have geographic limitations, to in areas where uh, they may not have this expertise, to be able to get this expertise in real time. I think uh, telemedicine plays an incredibly important role. Um, and I really applaud uh, the CDC for recognizing that and highlighting that. 
if we turn our direction, I think there's another opportunity with telemedicine. And, and that is from its utilization uh, to limit um, any type of potential exposures with healthcare personnel. Um, obviously, that's been a concern in China. We've all read about it. And then obviously, you know, there's been concern among healthcare workers in the United States. Again, telemedicine allows people to have to have that presence right in the patient room, to be constantly uh, viewing that patient. And obviously, because it's telemedicine, you're re- reducing any type of uh, exposure. Um, so the, and, and the real-time access to patients, uh, one of the things that I've found is that um, when I'm seeing patients through telemedicine, I, I can actually see them more frequently um, than I can in a bricks-and-mortar environment. Right? Even if my office was right across the street from a hospital, I would see a patient maybe once or twice a day. When I have a critically ill patient in the ICU, I can check on them at any time because all I have to do is click a button and I'm right there in the patient room, seeing the patient, looking at the monitors, talking to uh, the nursing staff and the other physicians there. So um, I think there's a myriad of different opportunities with telemedicine uh, technologies with COVID-19. A follow-up question now, Dr. Siddiqui. Do you agree with the CDC's assessment that hospitals should prepare for a greater role for telehealth in this outbreak? Absolutely. Um, and, and it's not just because this is what I do for a living and, and have been so interested in infectious disease and telemedicine. But I think, again, if we truly are preparing for um, the significant number of cases that we think we're going to see, it really does for the reasons I pointed out, the um, enhancing the workforce and enhancing access to expertise. Um, hospitals embracing telemedicine, whether you're a critical access hospital or whether you're a tertiary care facility, it really doesn't matter. You're going to have to play a role with telemedicine and telehealth technologies in, in order to bring that expertise to where the cases are. Some very useful information there, Dr. Siddiqui. Dr. Del Rio, I'd like to turn to you at this time. You have a great deal of experience in advocating for ID and HIV issues on Capitol Hill. Just this week, the Trump administration sent Congress a supplemental funding request for resources to support the response to this outbreak. What are your thoughts about the funding and will it be enough? Well, I think it's really hard to know what the funding is going to be enough. I think if you're asking about Is it enough for what we're doing right now? Yes, I think it's enough. I think there's money there for vaccines, uh, research, for surveillance, for other things. Is it enough for what may happen if there's a big outbreak in this country? Absolutely not. So I think we need to be thinking uh, flexible. I think we need to be thinking about this is an ongoing epidemic and and the needs and the requirements are going to be changing over time. This is not a one-time infusion of resources. But this also reminds me, that we need to stop treating outbreaks as emergencies in which we, we ask for money to put the fire off every single time. We have to think about this as, as how we deal with fires. We build fire departments, we build preparations, we build buildings that have fire alarms and extinguishers and are fireproof. We still have fires, but we don't build a fire department every time there's a fire. We have to think about building capacity in surveillance and in global health security so that every time we don't need to be asking for supplemental finding, uh, funding when there's an emergency, like if it was something that had never happened before. 
Great insight there, Dr. Del Rio. Shifting gears now to the subject of social media, many of your colleagues would consider you one of the biggest voices in the field on social media. There was quite a bit of misinformation about this outbreak on various platforms that might be sparking fear and other concerns. What have you seen that's worried you? So I think this is really the first uh, epidemic, first outbreak of the social media era. While the previous ones, for example, Ebola had a little bit of social media, the growth in Twitter and its other social media platforms has been uh, huge in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of the information is now happening through social media. We are learning through social media about new findings, about new discoveries. But I think at the same time, you have the combination of false information, fake information, misinformation, together with right information. And I think it's, it's our job as infectious disease physicians, it's our job as members of the IDSA to be continuously putting out right information and to be actively putting out the information that is reliable that people need to know because in confronting any outbreak, uh, I really like what DTEC says. DTEC says that we need to inform, to identify, and to isolate. Those are the three eyes of outbreak response. And I think information is critical and therefore a podcast like this or anything we can do to, to pass information to the general public, to our members, is absolutely essential. As an ID expert, how have you been counteracting this misinformation when you do see it? Well, I think there's misinformation you need to counter uh, right away and you need to especially, you know, attack it and put the right information out there. There's some misinformation that, you know, is coming from from places that everybody knows are not right size size of information that I think sometimes you're better off just letting it by and putting out your, instead of directing to them, you put something uh, parallel to them. And I'm thinking of what we did uh, last ID week, you know, we didn't go and and start attacking the anti-vax movement. We put a very strong strategy from IDSA social media in, in, in saying why vaccines are useful. So it's not the, the attack, the best attack is, is the offense. You need to see what's safe, what's correct, what's right, and put it out there. And I think what we did in vaccines is a good example of that. And lastly, what can other healthcare professionals do to help counter this misinformation if they do come across it? I think the most important thing that health information, uh, healthcare practitioners and IDSA members and anybody needs to do, the general public, part of this getting prepared for this outbreak is being up to date on the information. And I, I am biased, but I think the, the best up to date information is happening nowadays in social media, it's happening in Twitter. So, you know, I started getting in Twitter uh, early on because I thought it was a good way to really keep up the news, keep up with, with what's happening, keep, keep up with the, with the information. And I think it's really critical that we inform ourselves. I see young people doing this all the time. You know, Reddit, for example, and ask me anything on Reddit is, is one of the media that, that young people are looking at, at getting information. So we need to get information to people the right way and at the right time. I also want to compliment journals, the big journals, our journals, CID, JID, uh, have put all the, the articles related to the outbreak uh, uh, outside the firewall. And there's, for the first time in any epidemic, I'm seeing literally a, a desire to get information out to the public, out to the people and to really have people be able to read it. So we need to just be actively getting out the right information to people and doing it very effectively and rapidly. Some sound advice there. At this time, doctors, I'd like to open up the floor. If any of you would like to add anything, I welcome you to do so. 
I just wanted to quickly jump in and just um, kind of mirror some items that Dr. El Rio brought out. I think it's very true about almost like we function on a very reactive uh, response rather than proactive. You know, we saw this with vaccines, for instance. There was a SARS outbreak, which happened um, back in 2009, where there was a vaccine in development. But when SARS mysteriously disappeared in April, uh, the vaccine development stopped. So, um, you know, I think that's something we need to keep in mind and learn from that in these outbreak situations, we need to always stay prepared um, with development of new drugs, new treatment, um, and also um, a new vaccine. And I just wanted to also uh, piggyback the uh, social media comments by Dr. Rio. I do think that Twitter is a great platform. I'm on Twitter and I, it's where I got a lot of my updates. And, um, but, you know, there is a lot of misinformation out there. And I think responding to the information can be a very difficult choice. Um, as a public site, any reader can see responses to posts. And even when the misinformation is corrected, the mere exposure to such material can cause it to spread. So I think, um, you know, we need to be careful about how we respond. I think IDSA does a very good job, World Health Organization, the CDC, in getting that right information out. Useful information, Dr. Kalar. Dr. Siddiqui, do you have anything to add? You know, one of the things that, uh, that really interests me is that as these different treatment options come out there, um, th there's physicians on the ground are going to have a lot of questions about it. And I think that, again, telemedicine really offers a, a tremendous opportunity for us to be able to connect um, the boots on the ground physicians, whether it be emergency department physicians or others, or even local community physicians. Uh, risk stratify patients, how to test, if there's questions about testing, and then definitely about any of these uh, treatments. Um, and I think uh, we've been hesitant to use telemedicine for clinical trials, but I think that uh, in this setting, uh, telemedicine could really assist tremendously uh, if we're if we're going to do large-scale clinical trials or testing of medications or vaccines throughout the United States, if not globally. So I want to add something, and it has to do with uh, with something that keeps me up at night. And there are two things. Is in, Whenever I think about this outbreak and I think about other coronaviruses and I think about Ebola, I think about our healthcare workers and how a lot of the people impacted by this epidemic and, in fact, that have been healthcare workers who are on the front lines of taking care of patients who are at the same time putting themselves at risk and even not only getting infected, but even dying from this infection. So we need to do every effort to train our healthcare workers about how do you protect yourself? How do you properly use personal protective equipment? And how do you prevent healthcare workers from getting infected? But the other thing that keeps me up is that our healthcare system in the United States is saturated. We have no, no uh, surge capacity. And if we were to have a real outbreak in this country, we simply would be struggling and would be having to think about alternatives. And I think telehealth is, is great, but we're gonna to have to think other models of care like home care. I was looking in, in today, for example, in Korea, they're doing sort of drive-by testing so you don't need to go to the clinic to get tested. So we're gonna to have to be very innovative in how do we test, screen, and deliver care for people should we have a very large outbreak in this country. 
Definitely some interesting insight there, Dr. Del Rio. At this time, I'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Dr. Javid Siddiqui, Dr. Ravina Kalar, and Dr. Carlos Del Rio. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 outbreak, head to IDSA's website at idsociety.org. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Be sure to tune in next week as we welcome another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest developments on the outbreak.